Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I am Alicia Swamy. I'm here with Keely Severson and Eric Johnson, and we're exposing mold. Today, we have Dr. Dale Bredesen with us. Dr. Dale Bredesen is an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases. His career has been guided by a simple idea that Alzheimer's, as we know it, is not just preventable, but reversible. His dedicated pursuit of the science that makes this a reality has placed him at the vanguard of neurological research and led to the discoveries that today underlie the RECODE protocol from Apollo Health. Dr. Bredesen earned his degree from Duke University Medical Center and served as chief resident in neurology at UCSF before joining Nobel laureate Stanley Prusiner's laboratory at UCSF as an NIH postdoc fellow. He held faculty positions at UCSF, UCLA, and University of California, San Diego. He also directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before joining the Buck Institute in 1998 as founding president and CEO. Dr. Bredesen's research explores previously uncharted territory in explaining the physical mechanism behind the erosion of memory seen in Alzheimer's disease and has opened the door to new approaches to treatment. This work has led to the identification of several new therapeutic processes that are showing remarkable early results. Dr. Bredesen is an innovator in medicine with over 30 patents to his name. Notably, he put much of his findings and research into the 2017 New York Times bestseller, The End of Alzheimer's. His most recent book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, presents the stories of seven individuals who reversed their cognitive decline using the RECODE protocol. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Myco Lab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired all the time? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many medications, vitamins, supplements, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab specializes in the most precise form of mycotoxin testing by analyzing a patient's IgG and IgE antibodies in the blood serum sample, producing accurate results you can trust. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Bredesen. You know, what you've done in the neurodegenerative sector has been extraordinary, and we thank you for that. And also thank you for just coining Alzheimer's type 3 as, you know, mycotoxin exposure. Um, that's it's pretty paramount to, uh, to make that connection. As you know, Eric has been trying to connect mold and CFS for a long time, and I just I, I'm really curious as to your experience with just understanding the field of medicine. What is it about practicing medicine where doctors are merely will just look at symptoms and are content with just treating symptoms? 
it's amazing to me how many things we really don't know. Now, as people are beginning to find out these various things, and we want all the doctors to start looking at larger data sets, you know, the answer is no, that's not the way, med- that's not the way we practice medicine. You know, we, do that. we look at very little, we tell people we don't know what it is, and we don't have much for you. Uh, it's very backwards. Absolutely. In order to make progress in science, we have to stick with one thing at one time, manage the variables, and hone in on the problem. I know. It's amazing. So, so you're Lawrence Livermore. Um, well, this is a poster made by a uh, researcher that I spoke to years ago. Ah, I see. Very interesting. Yeah, Rick Kelly. Because, um, first of all, let me introduce myself. I'm basically the first prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, wow. I was the, um, living across the street from Dr. Paul Cheney in the okay. early 1980s. Yeah. And he saw a strange outbreak of illness in Incline Village. Oh, yeah, I remember Incline Village, yeah, the, the outbreak. Because I was his first patient, I wound up right in the middle of his investigation. Wow. So you are part of history. Yeah, I, I get, get to be a bit of little living history here. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wow. And I've, I've, I've spoken at uh, Dr. Shoemaker's uh, seminars. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, and I'm, I'm in, basically, the story of mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome is in four of his books. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty well known by now. Yeah, I think people are slowly, be, you know, slowly uh, st- you know, starting to accept that. It's interesting. In the Alzheimer field, you know, the, the experts have never accepted that, that mycotoxins may be a cause of it. And yet, from what we're seeing, it's one of the most common contributors. And of course, Shoemaker talks about seeing patients uh, who develop Parkinson's as well. Yeah. Yeah, all kinds of neurological diseases. Yep. And of so, course, with COVID, we're going to be facing you know, more. So the point of um, chronic fatigue syndrome is the CDC did an investigation, and this outbreak scared them so badly that they gave it a trivial, stupid name in order to fool doctors into thinking that it was just chronic fatigue. Interesting. And we had a fabulous data set. We had tons of evidence. And all the clusters were centered in sick buildings. Really? Oh, wow. So I suggested to Dr. Cheney and uh, Dr. Peterson and researchers at the time and uh, a few of the teachers even managed to approach the Center for Disease Control's epidemiologists and ask them directly to try to find out what is in the sick buildings. Right. And at the time, toxic mold wasn't entered in the literature. Wow. So when they looked up mold, it was just an allergy. Yes. And they dropped it. They dropped huh. it right there. Whereas we continued on with the investigation. <laughs> and eventually, as the evidence developed, as toxic mold and stachybotrys was discovered. Right. We were able to find out this was the actual substance in the buildings and every cluster that had a, a grouping of people with the dementia, the neurological illness, the fatigue, right, right. the low natural killer cell function. Every single one was an exposure to these toxin producing molds. And do you believe now that now that you've seen this, do you believe that all cases of CFS are mold and, in, and, in, and indeed are stachybotrys? Or is there some aspergillus and penicillium? And is there some non-mold CFS? Well, because chronic fatigue syndrome is actually a research instrument, first and foremost, yeah. it's an actual a tool 
put together by Dr. Gary Holmes to try to look deeper into this incident. If you think of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome as the name of an illness, people go, oh, well, that's just chronic fatigue is a set of symptoms. Right, right. That, that's not really very productive. Right. If you think of it as the research tool that is based on a specific data set, we can go in and analyze these data sets very precisely and find out exactly what the variables are. Now you ask if I think stachybotrys or toxic mold is responsible for all chronic fatigue syndrome. Well, since that was the core of the investigation, the first clue and the primary issue, right, right. if you think of it as a research tool, then that's essentially what chronic fatigue syndrome is for. Yeah. Now, of course, we want to know, is toxic mold responsible for individual cases, for other illnesses, for similar appearing problems with fatigue? Well, I wanted to find that out, so I simply took people with a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis to the, the buildings where stachybotrys was found and let the mold speak for itself. All of them had a severe reaction. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that is very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. And how often did you see cognitive changes in the people who had CFS? Every time. No exceptions. Wow. When the outbreak happened, we had a lot of things going on. Yes, there were viruses going through. Right. And, you know, some fungal infections and some bacteria and, you know, a lot of stuff. But in science, you want to try to narrow it down to dredge whatever useful you can out of an incident. Sure. And I did that with the clusters in the sick buildings and honed in on stachybotrys in particular. Right. And while I do believe that other toxin producers like ketonium right. uh, are, are also involved. And I do have to put it together with the virus because people were kind of hanging in there. They would go to work and they would suffer symptoms, but over, on the weekends, they would recover a bit. Over the summers, they would recover a lot. They'd go back to the schools in the fall and they would completely fall apart again. But every time they managed to recover until some kind of a flu-like illness went through, and it was the combination of a powerful flu plus the toxic exposure that finished them off and turned them into cases of chronic illness from which they could not recover. Absolutely. Very interesting. And do you believe, uh, along with Dr. Shoemaker, that part of this is genetic? Um, of course, he's very interested in the HLA, DRDQ, uh, haplotypes. Uh, others from the you know, ICI, the new group, uh, you know, argues that that's not so uh, not so important. What's your sense of that? Well, I never really put much stock in the genetic susceptibility theory because the very first cluster of yeah. what came to be known as chronic fatigue syndrome were 10 teachers in a single room. So what's the statistical likelihood of yeah. getting that many people with a rare susceptible you know, genotype? Yep, good point. And then, of course, you uh, look at the sick pets. Right, right. And they don't even have human leukocyte antigens. Right. So while I do agree that there's undoubtedly genetic variability within the human population, I think it's a mistake to focus on that in the overwhelming nature of this incredibly toxic exposure that at its height is capable of taking down anybody. Right, right. And do you see people when they are on a detoxification program clearly getting better? I mean, obviously, you're just saying even just removing the exposure seems to be very helpful. 
do you find that people who stay away and then detoxify do still better? Yes, but I have to qualify that. On this poster behind me yeah. is a timeline of the history of reports of toxic mold. And one of them is uh, from a hospital in Quebec, um, Mainville, back in the, around the same time as our outbreak in Incline Village, yeah. where hundreds of hospital workers got sick and it was traced back to stachybotrys. And what was curious about this incident is unlike other mold exposures, they did not recover a large percentage, somewhere between 10 and 20% of these white collar workers did not improve. And that's what called their attention to it is why aren't these people improving? Yeah. So they managed to link the failure to recover to a especially toxic mold, the trichothecene producers. Right, right. Very interesting. And if you kind of flip it around and say, okay, I'm going to now go from work to work and school to school and home to home and just ask how frequently do I identify these trichothecenes and these and stachybotrys uh, in these various places. How frequent? I mean, I, I recognize stachybotrys is something that tends to require more humidity, more moisture than some of these other ones like aspergillus. How often do you see these if you just start looking at, you know, how frequent are these things present? What I learned is that it didn't have to be a current exposure. People could have had uh, some kind of stachybotrys exposure years prior, uh-huh. and it, it left them primed, susceptible. Right. Other molds, the common um, ones that are now being implicated, aspergillus and uh, penicillium, people are exposed to those all day long. I mean, carpenters are constantly cutting up wood and fixing flooded buildings that are just full of these lesser molds. Right. And they do it with relative impunity. And then they come into contact with stachybotrys and they drop in their tracks. Wow. Interesting. So to come back to uh, how frequently do you think Stachybotrys <clears throat> inhabits the various buildings we all work in and, and uh, teach in and live in? Well, John Banta, who was the most prominent mold tester of the uh, 1990s, still a major player in the game, and he says that he can find Stachybotrys in just about any building, at least a few spores. So there, there seems to be some kind of threshold event, some level some additional element that's required to turn this into a a toxic exposure situation. Right. Now, in the um, original cohort at Truckee High School, that was provided by students tracking mud and snow into the the front of the building and Ah. into the wet carpet. Right. It was the jute backing uh, under the carpet that started to grow all this black mold. Mm. That's why we had such an incredible rate of illness in one particular section at the front of the school where other parts of the school, people had no idea anything was going on. Interesting, interesting. Then the second cluster that we had, I made up a nice little poster here mm-hmm. that I can show people. This is a newspaper of the um, other main cluster of what came to be known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And a loader was knocking um, ice dams off the flat roof of a school, punched a hole in a wall. So from the eaves, there was water pouring down one wall adjacent to a couple of teachers' desks. Right, right. These are the teachers who got sick. Yeah. 
and they were in direct, I mean, they were like six feet away from a, a colony of stachybotrys about the size of a baseball. Wow, amazing. Uh, and so when you have someone who has a suspected stachybotrys-related problem, how, how far do you go to determine where this is? Because you know, I hear people say you've got to knock out the wall, you got to get, you know, you pointed out the jute in that one case. Um, how difficult is it to find these? I guess the obvious thing is you first want to see how many colonies if you just start, you know, if you start looking at uh, uh, collecting this on plates. But um, how far do you go to find the stachybotrys? Extreme lengths. I mean, this stuff is deadly. It has to be yeah. out. You cannot occupy a building. Uh, somebody who's sensitized can't right. tolerate any amount of this stuff. Yeah. So the problem is testing has a really tough time finding it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's a large, heavy spore. It tends to fall out of the air. Uh, and it doesn't take much of it, plus the toxic dead fragments right. can, can still float around and make people sick, even though they're not identifiable under a microscope. Right, right. So I abandoned the idea of using testing, actually, before testing was even invented. Really? Wow. I uh, realized that my senses were a very good indicator. Yeah. Now, and do you have the classics, your C4A goes up when you get exposed? I was never tested for that. Okay. And are there many other inclined villages around the country? Are there other outbreaks like this that have been identified? Yes. And they're all being ignored. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is amazing how people have kind of just said, well, we live with mold every day. We live in it. Uh, it can't be a cause of disease, maybe an occasional allergy, and kind of miss these major, major diseases. I have to say, I was really shocked when we were looking at subtyping of Alzheimer's years ago. We published this back in 2015, and we had this group of people that didn't respond to the typical treatment to improving their insulin sensitivity and improving their trophic support, and, you know, the usual sorts of things that we found, you know, reducing their inflammation and things. And we wondered, you know, what is this group? And they also often present with different symptoms. They're often younger. They're often in their 40s and 50s instead of their 60s, 70s, 80s. And we started looking at, could this possibly be mold-related? And as we looked into it, you know, the more we looked, the more we found it was just everywhere. And if, they, if you don't address that, they don't get better. And so, uh, you know, I was shocked to see how frequently this does seem to be a contributor to what is labeled Alzheimer's disease. And of course, we feel the same just with CFS. Um, you shouldn't say Alzheimer's disease and then follow that with a period. It's like saying you died of fever. Well, Alzheimer's disease due to what? And there are all these different things. And it's you know, turning out that mycotoxins seem to be very common as contributors to this form of cognitive decline. Well, we tried everything we could do to recover from these exposures. Every detox regimen, every diet. Huh. Yeah. I mean, if, if it was on the market as some means to try to recover, yeah. we, we tried it and weren't getting much results. Yeah. And a few of us from Incline Village discovered quite by chance that if we went out to the nearby desert and managed to break free of all of our possessions, we would recover. We would have a spectacular recovery. Interesting. So it seemed clear that some kind of prolonged inflammatory response was preventing detoxification. And out in the desert, 
we stumbled into the right conditions, a low enough level of inflammation that our body felt safe to let some of this stuff go. Interesting, interesting. And when you say your possessions, uh, does that include your clothes? Does that include your, I mean, obviously it includes things like your couches and your rugs, um, but do you have to buy new clothes or what do you have to do when you get out in the desert? I'm, I'm thinking about this because I'm dealing with one particularly difficult case in a woman who had about 20 years of mold exposure um, and has classic Alzheimer's disease and you know has been on detox and she's really done fairly well, but she's plateaued and she's just kind of holding her own. And her husband keeps asking, you know, why isn't she getting better? Um, of course, one of the big concerns is, does she have some endogenous source? And so I would love to have them go out. When you went to the, to the desert, how long did you have to stay there? Well, typically we feel noticeable improvement within about three or four days. Okay. But it is absolutely necessary, it's necessary to break free of everything. I mean, you can't have anything, not even a toothbrush. That's how terrible this exposure is. Wow. I tell a story in um, Dr. Shoemaker's book, Mold Warriors, yeah. about nearly killing my commanding officer who had a peanut allergy. Oh, right, yeah. I was called in for a disciplinary action, and he was yelling at me, and so I'm, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, no excuse, yeah. sir. And uh, he got close to me, and he just dropped, and I had eaten a peanut butter sandwich. Oh, my gosh. That is sensitive. And that was all it took. And when I realized that my senses were telling me that I was reactive to stachybotrys at such a sensitive level that a single possession was capable of, of keeping me irritated, I began comparing my illness to this peanut reactivity. Yeah. And I realized microscopic amounts were a driving force in my illness. So yeah. it wasn't a matter of dose at all. It was just like a peanut allergy. A few molecules every day would wear down my immune system and I couldn't recover. That is amazingly sensitive. Yeah, it would be great to have a marker. I know uh, Dr. Shoemaker has used C4A as a marker that is a real-time marker. Uh, so it would be, but, but of course, you've got to get a blood test. It's, it's not easy. There's only really one lab that does it well. So it would be great to have something simple like a, you know, we use for, for ketosis, uh, a little breathalyzer that's easy, quick, non-invasive. It would be great to have something like that to indicate, yes, I've just been exposed to this so that people could track it and find out, you know, if I get rid of this toothbrush or that piece of clothing, are things better? It sounds like what you're saying is the only way to track it currently is just symptoms. And it turns out that that's a far superior way to do it. <laughs> Interesting. Because we don't need any tests. We don't need any experts. If we learn to trust our senses, we're actually very good indicators. And many people with mold illness will walk into a house, point at a, a wall, just a blank wall, and go, I feel mold on the other side of that wall. Yeah. And you bust through, and there it is. So that, so they, I mean, obviously there's a gradient there, which is really interesting. So, so here's the interesting thing. You're talking about you know, chronic fatigue, and you're talking about a, an, an immune response. As Dr. Shoemaker has pointed out when I've talked to him in the past about this, although our patients with Alzheimer's have all of the characteristics, they have the, you know, the high C4A, the high TGF beta 1, um, when they get away, they do better, when they are in exposed, they get worse, all of those things, 
they typically don't have the peripheral. That's been the interesting thing. About two-thirds of them do not have the peripheral manifestations. They don't have the chronic fatigue, and they don't have you know, his long list, ice pick pains and the electric shocks and all that stuff. So if the approach is to follow symptoms, but the only symptom is cognitive decline, which can be more chronic, how do we improve things for these people? I believe that there is a common denominator and that's in our heart response. Okay. Because everybody so far has had uh, some kind of cardiological reaction to exposure. And it may not necessarily be POTS or tachycardia. Right. Sometimes it can just be a, a laboring of, of the heart. I mean, no, no change in heart rate at all, just a significant feeling that your heart is pounding harder. Yes. Now, have you ever mentioned, have you ever measured HRV at this time when your heart is pounding harder? Have you, mentioned, have you ever measured the heart rate variability? I've made some very crude attempts to do so. And everything that I learned taught me that that was the wrong way to go. Okay. Looking for a variability was actually misleading. Oh, interesting. Because it was intensity that matters. Right, right. So, um, all right. So these wearables... You know, we're finding that the wearables can be very helpful because you can now, of course, easily check everything from your, you know, can do continuous glucose monitoring. You can check your telomere length. You can check your heart rate variability, your nocturnal oxygenation, your time in REM, uh, you know, all these on and on and on. Things that can be very helpful to determine whether you're at increased risk for cognitive decline. I wonder whether some of these could be very helpful. You're really describing tachycardia um, and, and, as you say, a kind of a sympathetic overdrive, it sounds like. A lot of people definitely go into tachycardia on this, and yet I think there's an underlying dysfunction, which is, is probably the universal symptom of mold exposure. And um, let's see if I can pronounce this correctly. There's a... Um, a fairly new syndrome being studied called CARPA, Complement Activation Reaction Pseudo-Allergy. Okay. And this was discovered by people studying uh, nanoparticles used in uh, nanomedicine. Yeah. Some people would have a really powerful, incredible cytokine cascade reaction to these nanoparticle treatments. Yeah. And it turned out that it was completely a complement activation problem, not uh, measurable by immunoglobulins. Mm -hmm. And the only way they could really study this was by looking at what the heart was doing upon exposure mm -hmm. to these nanoparticles. And this makes sense for C4A. I mean, if it's complement related. And, and what about mast cell activation? We hear this again and again and again. Do people with, with this uh, stachybotrys exposure uh, tend to have mast cell activation syndrome? They tend to, but it's, um, there's not a strong enough correlation to say, you know, right. one relates to the other. Yeah. In fact, it's the exceptions that make people wonder why it doesn't mesh up better than it does. I see. And that may be because the split, split activation of complement factors Whereas you go deeper into a chemical reactivity, you've got more anti-complement telling your antibody system to shut down. Yeah. So as you move deeper into a purely chemical form of reaction, 
you actually have the uh, alternate part of your you know, TH1, TH2 response telling your antibodies, go away for a while, don't, don't bother me, because we've got a serious chemical exposure to deal with here. Interesting. Okay. Now, one other thing, which is how often do you find that the people who have the syndrome ultimately will have an endogenous source as well? In other words, it may start exogenously, but do you ever see them there actually colonized? You know, Dr. Neil Nathan talks a lot about colonization, either a GI or sinuses typically. Do you see that much with this syndrome? No, I sure don't. No correlation at all. Uh, Dr. Brewer tried to establish that with, um, you know, setting fungal infections in the sinuses. Right. And um, Dr. Shoemaker really takes issue with that. He doesn't believe it. Yeah. But we have only really crude tools ourselves, our body's reactions, to try to uh, study this. We're not getting much cooperation from the medical community. Yeah. And There's not a lot of interest in the medical, from the medical community, as you know, in mold-related disease, whether you talk about Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, chronic fatigue, what have you. It's just not, it's not been something that's been dealt with, I think, nearly enough. I think it's a much more common cause of disease than, we, than has been recognized. Yeah, in fact, it may be pretty much the number one cause of disease. Maybe, yeah. When you look at all the sick buildings yeah. and all the opportunities for a momentary exposure, and this does add up over time, I think what happened is we got to a point where these chance exposures overwhelmed our opportunities for detoxification. Yeah. And we just moved into a, a situation where now there are just too many places that we get this, like uh, a peanut responder. You go into a restaurant, you get a few stray molecules of peanut hair, or you get on board an airliner. I know they don't have, they don't, for that very reason, they don't sell peanuts or they don't give away peanuts on airliners anymore. Right. Somebody might have a peanut uh, anaphylactic response. Right. But as more stachybotrys colonies got going all over the place, now it's very difficult to get away from. And if you listen to the people who are mold sensitized, they'll tell you this stuff is just lighting up all over the place. Interesting, interesting. Wow. So are you, are you working with any uh, research and development teams um, that may be helpful ultimately in developing some sort of, whether it's a wearable or some sort of simple test? Uh, as you say, that, you know, the, the best is just the, the, the symptoms. And yet I know it would, it would certainly go a long way toward getting the medical community to understand this if there were an objective way to say, okay, you know, when this thing goes up, now you know you've been exposed. And you said maybe the best way is to look at, at heart rate. I, I believe that if we were to hook people up, people diagnosed with these various acronym names, right. with, with Holter monitors, and send them through buildings that are known to be stachybotrys infested, yeah. we could get enough clues just by, by doing that that it could put us in a direction of, of where to look deeper, where to look next. Right, right. And I've proposed this to many chronic fatigue syndrome institutes and researchers, and they flat out refuse to do this because as it stands, the big money is finding the mystery virus. Of course, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and especially with the pandemic now, um, you know, there's even more emphasis on, you know, what's the virus causing your problem? So uh, that's, that's a good point. We, I think that people aren't recognizing that here is a larger pandemic, um, which is not a viral one. And I always point out to people that just for perspective, there are over 700,000 Americans who have died from, the, from COVID-19. And on the other hand, there are almost 100 times that many Americans. Of the currently living Americans, about 45 million will die from Alzheimer's disease if we don't develop an effective prevention and treatment. So uh, you know, here's an example where you know, this causes multiple diseases. And if you look at the, as you say, you look at the overall spectrum, uh, maybe the you know maybe the most common cause of these various diseases. Uh, amazing. Yeah, and we're we're trying desperately to get researchers to follow up on this. Yeah. The uh, National Institute of Health just had a briefing on the biology of fatigue, and not once was mold even mentioned. No, you're kidding me. It's not even on their radar. Wow. Well, that's that's sorry. I'm very sorry to hear that. That's unfortunate. It's a kind of a peculiar way to do research because we've got so much evidence for mold cropping up here and there. Yeah. But uh, I, I seriously believe that a part of the problem in treatment is just getting people's inflammation down to a point as long as they're still undergoing any exposure to any secondary chemicals or toxins to where their body really feels safe to go into detox and recovery mode. So that's why the desert is such a fascinating ex experiment. Yeah. And when you say the desert, how little humidity must there be? I mean, do you have to go to Death Valley? Do you have to go to the Sahara? Can you go to a relatively dry place like, like Phoenix? You know, how, how much desertification do you have to undergo? Death Valley is the ideal. Okay. That's, that's like the gold standard. Okay. Yeah, we get people out in the dunes of Death Valley and they are amazed. They, they go into a detoxification mode that's so intense that they actually become hypersensitive. They'll realize, wow, I set up a tent out in the middle of the, the rocky, barren desert here, and now all of a sudden I become so sensitive that if I go near my car or I touch any possession that came out of my moldy house, I can feel it. Wow. This scares people so badly that they think, well, I'm getting worse. This is the wrong thing to do when actually that's how you recover because you're giving off your, your detoxification channels that finally opened up. Right. So let's talk for a minute about inflammation and detoxification. So you talked about both of those. For the inflammatory side, do you typically recommend things like resolvins? Uh, do you recommend curcumin? Do you recommend omega-3s? What sorts of things do you rec recommend an, you know, anti-inflammatory diets? What sorts of things do you recommend for best anti-inflammation and re resolution of inflammation for someone who has these exposures? I'm sort of a naturalist. I believe that um, anything that we put into the body that's in excess of what our body can use becomes one more thing that the body has to try to get clear. Yeah, interesting. So I didn't really alter my diet except to um, do more like apple pectin. Yeah. And maybe some uh, binders like bentonite. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. As these toxins are passed into the intestines, you don't want them to be reabsorbed. Yeah. But I didn't go as harsh as Dr. Shoemaker's cholestyramine treatment. Right, right. 
Okay, so that's the other half of this besides the inflammation. Now, the detox. You said something I thought was really interesting because we have a number of people who have cognitive decline. They're on detox, but they've kind of plateaued. As I mentioned, that the one patient, but there, there are many like this where they'll kind of have this, well, we're detoxing, but it doesn't seem to be helping. Now, they haven't gone out to the desert. They haven't removed. So your point, is, I, if I understood it correctly, was before you get into detox, you really need to remove that exposure, uh, and that will allow you to begin to detox. Is that the point? Yeah, Dr. William Ray, uh, down in uh, Texas at his environmental health clinic, he had air-filtered rooms. He had special rooms, low chemical and highly, highly treated air, and people would get into these rooms, and that was the equivalent of getting to the desert. People with horrible chemical sensitivity would go down and stay in his rooms and they would feel terrific as long as they were there but then they'd have to leave and they'd go home get back into a normal situation and they were too far under the power curve and they'd lose ground again Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you look at places like snowflake arizona the community for the uh, chemically damaged people yeah and if you can spend more time in a really low Tox environment, low chemical, low mold, over time, these people recover. So that seems to lend support to the, the idea that this is a, a long, slow detoxification process, and there's not going to be any easy, quick fix for it. Right. Well, and presumably, you know, these things, uh, you know, we know as, as an example, when you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you've had the biochemical changes in your body for about 20 years. That's well-documented by spinal fluid analysis, by PET scan. So, you know, presumably, if, it, if this is related to various toxins, they're in every organ. You've got, a, you know, you've got a 20-year history, and so it's hard to turn the ship immediately. So that is really interesting. So maybe the detox would begin to work better for these people if they would get themselves in these appropriate environments. Do you have a favorite one that you recommend for people? You mentioned Snowflake. You mentioned Death Valley. Do you have a place you think is, is practical for people from all over the country to, to go? I feel that just about all of northern Nevada is ideal. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And where are, good, where are good places for people to stay in northern Nevada? Obviously not Incline Village. <laughs> Yeah, Incline Village has its source points, but once I got higher on the power curve and built up more tolerance, I could narrow down the places that I needed to avoid to just a few locations, just a few bad buildings. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so, so in a related issue, you, know, you talked about mold and then there are other things that can, that can contribute, even though mold may be at the center. Um, what about Lyme disease? We see so many people, especially in the Northeast, but also to a lesser extent in California and all over the world, where uh, they are Borrelia positive, and often, of course, you know, other uh, tick-borne organisms, Babesia and Bartonella and Ehrlichia and Anaplasma and all those. Uh, how often do you see this combination of mold and Lyme? There again, 100%. During the outbreak, when Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson became famous for being the leading specialists in what came to be known as chronic fatigue syndrome, people from all over the country were flying to Incline Village to see these two doctors. And 
they would fly into the terminal building at uh, Reno Cannon Airport, now Reno Tahoe Airport, and drop in their tracks. They would get off the plane and fall apart. Wow. And I started asking, because they would come up to Incline Village and they'd describe, wow, you know, I'd, I felt so terrible at this one building. And I would ask them about their situation. And I found that some of them had a, a Western blot diagnosis of Lyme disease. Yeah, yeah. And these, this group, these Lyme disease people, were the first discrete identified illness that I found who were just as reactive to the sick buildings as people with the Lake Tahoe mystery illness were. Yeah. So I started taking people with Lyme disease to these same buildings. There again, they would drop in their tracks. And for that reason, I uh, almost tried to blame Lyme disease for a while for the Tahoe mystery illness, but we had a, a different set of variables. We had a flu-like illness that went through that struck people down with a four to seven day incubation period, which is obviously not Lyme disease. So for purposes of research, I have to maintain a very narrow focus on chronic fatigue syndrome being the exact flu-like illness entity that the yeah. CDC was called to investigate. Right. What relationship this has to Lyme disease still remains to be seen. But as you say, the uh, reactivity to mold is absolutely a factor. Yeah, very, very interesting. And it's interesting to me that it's really been, it's not just mold, it's a one specific mold, Stachybotrys. And how many different Stachybotrys species are associated is it charterum is it what what are the stachybotrys species that are associated with this it tends to be charterum the uh eulocladium not so much okay but at the uh, 2019 fort lauderdale uh, florida mold congress dr chin yang gave a presentation that just absolutely blew me away because normally stachybotrys charterum has um, neuroinflammatory compounds that mm -hmm. serve as a warning to tell you to, to get away from this stuff. Yeah. This charterum is bad news, and the, the saftatoxins instill such a, a sense of brain compression, of distress, of inability to breathe, uh, all the neurological reactions that tell you something is seriously wrong. And he said that in the early 1990s, uh, a chemotype of Stachybotrys was identified called chlorohalonata, which was notable for being high in production of atronones, immunosuppressive compounds, mm -hmm. but, but lacking in the neuroinflammatory substances. Wow. In other words, you're having your immune system shut off by protein synthesis inhibitors right. without the warning that would tell you to get away from it. Wow. That's scary. So it may be possible that the uh, chlorohalonata is actually the more damaging and the more devious because you have no warning to get away from you. Right. From it. And this could be shutting down cell mitosis and causing, leading to all this plethora of various diseases that people can't otherwise figure out. Right, right. Wow, that is concerning. So when you look at these, are there specific uh, are there specific compounds? So if you're looking at charterum and you're looking at CFS, 
have you narrowed this down to a specific trichothecene or is it multiple trichothecenes or is it other things? What are the things you mentioned before that even the fragments being a concern? And is it, it sounds like part of this is a specific alteration in the immune system, a specific disimmune sort of pattern as opposed to simply complete immunosuppression. Well, I did narrow it down to Sacchibarchus charterum specifically mm. yeah. as being by far the most problematic mold. Okay. And yet, if you look back at the history, Sacchibarchus wasn't known to be this much of a problem until the 1980s. Wow. There's no record of it. In fact, the indoor air quality profession was shocked when this yeah. toxic mold emerged as being such a horribly damaging factor because if it had been around, surely there would be some kind of record of it. Yeah, do you we, think this was because of antifungal selection or plasmids, or why was this? Well, I presented this theory at Dr. Shoemaker's 2015 Phoenix conference that I, I saw an abstract that talks about mold as powerful synthesizers of nanoparticles. Yeah. That if you provide mold with the, the basic constituent elements, the ions necessary to assemble nanoparticles, they will start pumping them out in 45 minutes. So I came up with this idea that modern human pollution is providing certain species of mold with the, the necessary elements to pump out clouds of nanoparticles and in combination with the toxins which will adhere to the surfaces of the nanoparticle, we now have a, a paradigm of a toxic that formerly was unable to get into the blood and brain. It was stopped by the defenses in our lungs, which it's now attached to a nanoparticle, yeah. which completely sails past our defenses and activates the microglia, possibly leading to Alzheimer's. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that microglial activation is part of, uh, an important part of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so that actually makes perfect sense, uh, and unfortunately, because then the question is, you know, I, how, how do you then deal with these particles? Uh, let me go back, though, for one second, because I'm fascinated by this issue of, you know, here are the, here's this set of molecules that these, that these species have, have developed. I mean, obviously, evolutionarily have developed the ability to produce these. When we think of something like penicillin, it's very clear that, you know, it's very likely that this is so that they survive among bacteria. Okay. Why do you think that, that these species of molds develop the ability to make trichothecenes? I mean, these are typically, you know, metabolically expensive pathways. So why such a push to develop these trichothecenes? Well, good question. You know, why would a mold be you know, driven to produce such a as you say, uh, biologically expensive. Yeah, uh, must be some process. huge advantage. Some huge advantage, yeah. Are they and, highly bacteriotoxic? Uh, yeah, extremely so. Okay. And they've tried to turn stachybotrys toxins into antibiotics, and they're just too powerful. Right, right. I read about a, um, a sick building in Sacramento, which was it really stunned the... Um, remediators because it was in the carpet and as they tested sections of carpet they found a dead zone 
They found an area of carpet completely devoid of fungal and bacterial life. Right, right. right. It was between two competing colonies. Yeah, sure, yeah. And they, so their theory was that these two different species of molds were duking it out so bad that they created a, a no man's land, yeah. a dead zone between them, completely yeah. devoid of life. You know, this is fascinating because th- there's an interesting story about uh, th- these sea squirts that, that basically look at whether they're going to interact sexually or not. And if, they're, if they decide, no, they're not compatible, they actually secrete amyloid as a barrier. And so one of the functions of the amyloid that we associate with Alzheimer's disease is as a barrier. It is an antimicrobial, it is an antiviral, it is an antifungal, but it is also a barrier sort of function. And so, again, you have these things invading the brain, your brain coats this stuff you know, with amyloid. And so we look in the brain and see the amyloid and say, aha, you have Alzheimer's disease. Well, you know, you really had exposure to things that were bad for your brain. And so I'm wondering whether that may be some of this response to the various uh, fragments, the various particles you're talking about, and even the various toxins you're talking about. Well, metallic nanoparticles aren't cleared from the tissues. We have no mechanism to remove them. Yeah. All we can do is encapsulate them. Yep. So if it's true that uh, mold is capable of synthesizing metallic nanoparticles, then we, hear, we have a culprit that could conceivably act just as it does in nanomedicine, yeah. go completely through the body into all the organs, including the brain. The body's trying to sequester it, yeah. to you know, isolate it, and that's the only way it can do so. Right, exactly. Yeah, you just have to essentially, uh, you know, you, you need to encase it. Uh, in something. It's almost like making amber to encase it in amber. And, you know, if you, if you invade a, a beehive um, with, you know, a rat or with some sort of organism, uh, they will encase it. Um, in that case, they encase it with propolis. But interestingly, that's a little bit like amyloid. It, it is a, it's something that is a sterilizing, hardening barrier that allows you to wall yourself off from the problem. And so uh, it's interesting what you're describing. You could be in a situation where you're walling this stuff off, but you're also activating microglia, which will ultimately help to clear. Uh, When you look, have you done much work looking at what are the actual changes in the immune system? And obviously these things survive with, with changing your immunity. Have you looked much at what are the characteristics? So what happens to the humoral immunity? What happens to the cellular immunity? What happens to the innate immunity? We see massive evidence of antiviral enzymes, activation of uh, all of our antiviral defenses, which is what keeps chronic fatigue syndrome researchers chasing after a virus. Viruses, yeah. But if we read about nanoparticles, the immune system is incapable of telling the difference between a virus and a nanoparticle. Interesting, interesting. So, so do you see, uh, do you see, so it sounds like you're seeing a lot of innate sorts of things, interferons and things like that. Yeah, and uh, a massive drop in natural killer cell cytotoxicity. Ah, okay. Interesting, interesting. You know, Dr. Shoemaker is having a uh, seminar today. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. I was not aware that he was having a seminar today. Yeah, he's uh, unveiling his genie uh, results, his mm-hmm transcriptomic testing, right, right, which has led him away from mycotoxins. 
you know, after the 2019 Mold Congress, he pretty much stepped away from mycotoxins and said mold or mycotoxins is less than 7% of chronic inflammatory response syndrome. What does he feel the other 93% come from? Uh, filamentous bacteria, actinomycetes. Okay. But he says the um, genomic activations are more consistent or are coming from endotoxins and actinomycetes. Hmm. And is, but of course, he was the one who originally said mold can do this. Um, does he think that these are traveling together? Is that why he was wrong at the beginning then? He's done several talks where he said, hey, I'm the guy that wrote Surviving Mold. I'm the guy that wrote Mold Warriors. And now I'm saying mold isn't it. That everything we learned was a mistake. Okay. But obviously but, he was in the presence of mold. So it sounds like he's <laughs> saying these things traveled with the mold. Is that the idea? Well, he says he hasn't stepped away from mold. And yet his uh, diversion of focus to his, his new yeah. theory uh, represented such a drop in interest in what Stacky Botris is doing, that to me that does represent a loss of interest in mold. I see. However, uh, and I told him this, I feel that the reason why his testing is not unveiling the, mm -hmm. the true nature of this illness is because it hasn't been discovered and entered into the database yet. Mm, interesting. Now, if, it's, if it's true that human pollution, modern atmospheric pollution of metals, all the various um, particulates that we're putting into there can be processed by mold into nanoparticles, yeah. then it may be that the reason why these mycotoxins are exerting such a ferocious effect on us now whereas they didn't used to, yeah. is because they have to be in combination with the nanoparticle. You know, that is interesting. You know, you mentioned before that something, you know, something has changed where this is, that doesn't seem to have been there before. And it reminds me of the story of BRCA1, uh, which of course is the breast cancer associated gene, which everyone recognizes now. If you have BRCA1 uh, mutant, then you are at increased risk for multiple cancers, but especially breast cancer. And of course, the, the surprise was when you go back to these very old samples and analyze things from years ago, the 1940s, uh, for example, you don't see, I mean, that was the big surprise. There was not an association with breast cancer back then. So something else has changed. Yes, the gene is incredibly important, but there has to be something else as well that brings this along. So this, you know, kind of reminiscent, there's a, it's the two hit theory. There's something more. So if we go back to the actinomycetes uh, mycetes for a minute, where does he think is the idea then that these water damaged buildings are providing not only mold species and mycotoxins, but also actinomycetes? Yeah. And he believes that the toxins, the, uh, the measurements that he makes of the genetic activation from actinomycetes are so powerful and so overwhelming that this is a much more significant factor than the mycotoxins. Okay. But now but actinomycetes there again, respond to certain antibiotics. Has he tried these antibiotics then with people who have these exposures? I don't know. Interesting. But yeah, I asked the same question. Yeah. If it were, then, then why can't we just fix it with antibiotics? Yeah. And we would still have to ask the same question. Why weren't these actinomycetes such a problem in water damaged buildings prior to the 1980s? Right, right. 
when you have to abandon the school when everybody in a, a building gets sick then um that leaves a mark right even if you didn't know what it is the fact that it happened is going to leave a trace right and, and when this sick building syndrome emerged in the 1970s with legionnaires disease and chemicals yeah it was it was a mystery and mold wasn't even on the radar Right. In fact, mold was not suspected in sick building syndrome for at least another 15 years after the sick building paradigm was developed. Right. Wow. So if you go back to the Incline Village, you mentioned that before the very interesting point about the you know bringing in the mud, bringing in the snow, you get this very wet environment, which of course you know, all of our schools had this problem. I remember it well from when I was a little boy. Everyone's, you know, <laughs> dampened on getting their boots uh, off and things like that. How did it then spread from that school to other buildings? Well, like I say, we had a lot going on in 1985. Right. And uh, I've actually done a video on this for uh, MECFS Alert, where mm -hmm. I tell the story that we're having an algal bloom. Now, Lake Tahoe is known for its pristine water and its clean air. And it was like not completely unheard of to have an algae bloom. Yeah. But in the 1980s, we had a whopper. I mean, there was green muck on the lake. There was just scum floating up from the silt. And um, when we were boating, windsurfing, swimming, we would have to wade out through this green slime. Yeah, to right. Into this formerly beautiful lake. And people were so freaked out about it that um, they're saying, oh, we're going to have to turn this into a national park and limit entry and ban cars. Uh, at the time, they built a sewer system because they didn't want any more sewage going into the lake that pipes it all out of the Lake Tahoe Basin. So this was a big deal. People have completely forgotten that there was a one-time event of an algal bloom that wasn't recorded before and hasn't happened since. Very interesting, wow. So what happened in 1985? What was different? Well, as I was driving over Donner Pass, every year I would look down at the pollution plume from the San Joaquin Valley, the agricultural region, Sacramento, which is upwind of Lake Tahoe. And it was like a brown cloud. And every year it crept a little bit higher up on the mountains, but didn't quite crest the, the mountain peaks, didn't yeah. spill into the basin. And in the mid-1980s, that's when the brown cloud, the pollution, finally got high enough from the San Joaquin Valley to fill the basin with this horrific blue haze. Huh. So I feel that we had some kind of microbial alterations Something changed so dramatically yeah. that the balance of what was going on in the silt unleashed this algal bloom. And the toxins from this algal bloom were working in conjunction with whatever was going on in the sick buildings to result in all these buildings across a wide geographic area acting up at the same time. Yeah, I mean, this is the uh, incline village microbiome changed. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And as it turns out, there were uh, sanitation workers who were reporting becoming ill by working in the sewage system, the, the sewer systems. 
could we stop there for one sec? Because you yeah. mentioned sewer systems. The very first patient that I saw with various, unfortunately, very severe Alzheimer's had been working in sewers. And this is the first one who clearly had this toxic form of Alzheimer's. And, and we were trying to find out you know, what the heck was going on. Again, another relatively young, so typical, very young person. Uh, and uh, what about the sewage exposure? Um, you know, what do you think is critical from there? Well, like I say, I think uh, some atmospheric yeah. water pollution came in, fed the microbes something that they could use, that they could process to turn what was an acceptable level of toxicity into super toxins. Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, as you know, uh, right now we're experiencing this huge increase in Parkinson's disease. It is the neurological disease uh, on, that's most rapidly increasing, unfortunately. And this is coming back to chemical exposures typically. Um, and as you indicate, these can be relatively complex with changes in microbiome and you've got you know volatile compounds and you've got nanoparticles. And, and you know, this is really a kind of Sherlock Holmesian mystery that you're solving here. Really fascinating. I used to uh, correspond with Dr. Lida Matman, the author of um, Cell Wall Deficient Organisms. Mm. She was uh, really huge for studying uh, mycoplasma and Parkinson's. Basically, if it, if it was a cell wall deficient organism or even a spirochete, mm -hmm. which has a reduced gene form, which you know lacks its flagella and is acting as more of a cyst form, you know, she was right on it. And mm -hmm. it is it said that she was so familiar with these neurological diseases that she could accurately identify them by looking at a blood smear. Really? Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And how could she do that unless she had done this often enough where she could pick up a correlation between, say, Parkinson's and right. these spiroketal illnesses, these bacteria? Yeah. So I believe that Parkinson's is probably a combination of these neurotoxic exposures from sewage yeah. and that priming that we get from a, a chronic spirochetal infection. Yeah, fascinating. And, and that brings up, uh, have you, uh, did you have any interaction with the late uh, Dr. Thrasher? Yes, I did. Who was obviously so active in, in mold-related disease. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, I, I turned Dr. Thrasher into a mold believer. Really? Interesting. Um, yeah, he was with the Chemical Injury Information Network back in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And he was blaming everything on formaldehyde. Ah, okay. I mean, certainly because of his uh, relationship with uh, Cindy During and Cynthia Wilson, he was interested in pesticides and all the other chemicals that went along with it. But mold wasn't on his radar. Okay. And because of my experience starting this chronic fatigue syndrome, right, and, and uh, all the you know communications I've done with people. And the way I've been pursuing mold all this time, I saw how there was a correlation between the fatigue and the chemical sensitivity, and right. they thought that they would want to know about it. So I contacted them, yeah. and much to my amazement, Dr. Thrasher told me that what I was saying about mold was impossible. <laughs> he said, no, you're mistaking chemical exposures for mold toxins. Yeah. 
And just about that time, we were in a group, autism mold fungal research group, an e-group, and he was primarily studying uh, the relationship of chemicals to autism. And a lady pops up and says, well, she's got a peculiar thing going on with her autistic son where he avoids a certain corner of the house. Mm. I mean, he's just, you can't get him to go to this corner of the house. They've got a fenced off yard. He was nonverbal. He was a pretty severe case. And she said the odd thing is he avoids that same corner of the house when he's outside. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And Dr. Thrasher postulated that, well, maybe he's reacting to formaldehyde. Right. And I asked, well, why would formaldehyde be concentrated in one corner? Presumably, if the house is built of the same materials, there would be an equal distribution. Yeah. So I proposed that it was more likely that there was a colony of toxic mold in that corner. Right. And Dr. Thrasher thought that was absolutely absurd. So I had the uh, lady contact Dr. Gary Ordog, who was an early mold pioneer, a proponent of toxic mold illness. Mm-hmm. And she had the house tested and found stachybotrys in that corner. Yeah. Very and interesting. It, unfortunately, it pissed off Dr. Thrasher so much that he, <laughs> he decided not to work with me after that. But it did turn him into a mold believer. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, he sent me a number of articles. And, of course, they studied whole families where they, each one would have something different, but they would all have some mold-related disease. So one of the things I wanted well, to let ask me, about, let me t- yeah, Let ahead. me tell you one more thing about Dr. Thrasher, though, because um, the co-founder of the Chemical Injury Information Network, Cindy During, she had a pesticide exposure. And they blamed her illness specifically on the chlorpyrifos, I think it was. But they felt that this was the driving force in her chronic illness, which was getting progressively worse. Mm -hmm. And they wound up building a special custom house for her, low chemicals. They did everything they could to free this, this house of all chemical exposures. And yet she continued to decline. Mm -hmm. And this was just about the same time when I was making contact with them. And they kept concentrating on other chemicals that they could try to keep out and nothing was working. And at the very last, when she was having seizures and she was, I mean, she couldn't even talk because the vibrations of her own voice would cause her to go into seizure mode. Mm. All of a sudden she dropped her interest in chemicals and started researching mold. Mm -hmm. And I told this to Dr. Thrasher and I said, it's very similar with the peanut reactivity um, model, where if you get hit with a few molecules every day, and this prolonged inflammatory response keeps trying to subtract anti-inflammatory cytokines so that you have a more powerful response for the next exposure, mm-hmm. you keep driving yourself into a deeper and deeper state of inflammation mm-hmm. with no respite. And she finally decided mold was a driving force but unfortunately it was too late in her illness to do anything about it Hmm. but but the very fact that she dropped all interest in in chemicals and gathered all this information on mold is a it's a good clue and i asked dr thrasher to um try to find out what cindy had written about mold yeah but at, at that time he was still not interested in mold so yeah. he didn't he didn't finally turn into a super mold believer a few years later 
Right. And when, when you look at people with CFS that you've studied, how much difference does it make if they're spending the vast majority of their time outdoors versus the vast majority of their time indoors? For example, do they get much worse during the winter when they're, uh, you know, as I always worry about these people being exposed much more when they're not getting out. And do some of them simply go and, you know, start living out, outdoors and camping out each night and things like that? Yeah, and more of them, more of this all the time. But during the Lake Tahoe outbreak, there was sort of a sister outbreak in Lindenville, New York. Hmm. And they had the identical thing. And hmm. this doctor noted the downturn in winter, just as we did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just about the holidays every year, I was fighting for my life. Yeah. I, right. Every year wow. I thought, this winter, it's my last. Yeah, yeah. And I found out that they were suffering from the same exact thing in Lindenville. Yeah. And they called it the November factor. Oh, interesting. The November factor. Now, this Dr. David Bell, he noted that his chronic fatigue syndrome patients would relapse and they'd hit the peak of complaining about the end of November. Right, right. It would start out in October and continue on through the holidays. But yeah. in November, it really seemed to hit its peak. Yeah. And this coincided with the severity of the winter storms. Yeah. And I found that because you ask about, you know, inside versus outside, well, right. when you've got chronic fatigue syndrome, you don't really alter your lifestyle all that much. Yeah. You're, you're pretty much indoors all the time. Yeah, probably not a good thing. Yeah, if, if, you, if you can crawl outside for a couple hours a day, you're doing good. Right, right. Well, this is you know, absolutely fascinating, and I think it is highly relevant for many of the patients we see with neurodegenerative disease and especially cognitive decline. I would love to continue this at some point. Yeah, because I think can, this is going to be very relevant for a number of these people. And for example, I'm already thinking about um, the, some of these people who you know, have never tried this idea of just getting to a more arid environment. This actually may turn out to be helpful for them. It's a fascinating experiment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right, well, I, I look forward to further discussion. This is uh, absolutely fascinating. It, as I say, it's a, this is a Sherlock Holmesian uh, you know, ongoing mystery with all these interesting pieces coming out. So this is fantastic. I really appreciate the discussion, and I look forward to further discussion. Great. Nice talking to you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation. We can't wait to have him back on the show to talk more about his books, his interesting findings in inhalational Alzheimer's, which is pretty new and revolutionary. We hope that we can do some work together in the future. It sounds like maybe his protocol and Eric's protocol mixed together might really supercharge healing. So that's something we'd like to possibly explore in the future. So please like, share, comment on our content. Also go to our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to donate to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.